I'm pulling out of my driveway. So we know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay. Two weeks ago, I started talking about the design of Mirage. And then last week, I continued talking about the design of Mirage. But I was not yet done. So today is part three of Mirage design. Um, so what I started doing last week is I started telling a bunch of stories about cards. Um, and the idea is I'm just jumping around. The stories are all over the place. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that um, I was not on the design team. I was on the development team for this one. Um, and so I have plenty of design stories that happen during development. Um, but a lot of my stories are more development-oriented or changes that happen during development. Or Last week, for example, I talked about some art and some flavor text. So these stories are all over the place. I, what I've learned is I talk about what I know um, just because the stuff I experienced or saw... Uh, it's, it's the easiest stuff for me to tell the stories. So I wasn't privy really to what went on during the design of Mirage, other than watching, you know, working on it with, with Bill during development. Um, but anyway, i got more stories to tell, so I'm going to tell them. Okay, so today I'm going to start with the Phyrexian Dreadnought. Dun-dun-dun! Okay, so here's, here's, here's how that card came to be. Um, so what happened is, uh, when Alpha came out, Richard made two cards. One was called Lord of the Pit, that was a 7-7, and the other was called Force of Nature, that was an 8-8. Those were the largest creatures in magic, or in, you know, natural creatures, I mean, Rock Hydra could get bigger. Um, okay, so, uh, then Antiquities, uh, two sets later, the second expansion, Antiquities, had a card called Phyrexian Colossus, that was a 9-9! Nine, nine. Uh, and then, a couple sets later, in the dark, there was a, a card called Leviathan, it was a 10-10! Then, a couple sets later, in uh, Ice Age, there was Polar Kraken. 11-11! So you can see where this was going. Uh, it was a little game we were playing where we kept one-upping ourselves. Um, so we got to Mirage. I said to Bill, I said, Bill, Bill, we got to make a 12-12. And Bill was like, I don't know. You know, this, I'm not sure we should keep playing this game, was basically what Bill said. You know, because I, I don't want to make a 12-12 just to make a 12-12. But he said, okay... If you can make a 12-12 that's interesting, I'll put it in the set. So the gauntlet thrown down. Uh, and so basically, I had to go off and make a 12-12 that was interesting. And so I, I, I came back and I said, okay, Bill, I got 12-12 Trampler, cost one mana. <laughs> now, for those of you who know this card, um, it's a, it is a 12-12 Trampler, it costs one mana, when it comes into play, you must sacrifice up to 12 power worth of creatures or sacrifice the Phyrexian Dreadnought. Um, so it, it has a little extra cost. But, Bill was intrigued. Bill was like, okay, uh, mission accomplished. Challenge, challenge, you know, uh, achieved. Uh, and he put it in the set. Um, and that card is going on to have some notoriety, because, uh, if you play it kind of honestly, the card is fine. But, uh, there's a lot of ways to sort of have no expectation of actually saving the Vrexian Dreadnought, where I pay one, I get my 12-12, and yeah, yeah, it's going to go away, because it's going to end up being the 12 power you have to pay. But, you know, it triggers things. or Anyway, there's all sorts of shenanigans. But uh, the card just started with me kind of, uh, I don't know, I, 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 as I talked about last week, I, I like sort of having ongoing trends and things. I, I like little meta things. I like the ATOGs. I like the Mega Mega Cycle. I might have had a lot to do with most of that stuff. But anyway, one of the things I've always enjoyed is, I feel there's a, uh, when I say metagame, I mean the R&D term, 
Uh, the players talk about metagame, about what to play at a tournament and what's good. Uh, the R&D metagame, which is a slightly different term, talks about all the things that encompass magic. The magic is not just the playing of the game, but it's everything that comes with it. And a lot of the community building is, I like doing things where people can anticipate things or predict things, and I think that's an important part of magic. Okay, next, we will talk about Cadaverous Bloom. Um, so this was a card I made. Uh, once again, I, I did not make tons and tons of cards in, in, in Mirage. Uh, I made some. Uh, I'm just telling the stories because these are the ones I know. Um, pe- people are often like, why do you always talk about stuff you did? And I'm like, because I know what I did. Um, and so, anyway, I, I will tell... Some of these stories are not about cards I did, but, hey, some of them are. Um, okay, so Cadaver's Bloom, what happened was we had a bunch of gold cards in the set, and we, we didn't like the black-green one, so we killed it. And so there was a black-green hole, a gold hole. Had to be rare, black-green. So, um, what I did was, I said, okay, um, we got to make a, a card. And I said, okay, well, what, what does black do and what does green do? Um... And at the time, black was very much about, uh, or still is, uh, giving up resources for advantage. You know, that you pay life to draw cards. And I'm like, oh, well, what if black could discard cards and get something for it? Um, and then I thought about, okay, well, what, um, what could it get? And I said, well, okay, well, that's the black part. You can discard cards. And I said, what's the green part? And I said, well, the green part is getting mana, you know, uh, and no, Black was, at the time, was number two in mana, so it had you know, Dark Ritual and stuff at the time, um, but green could get you any color mana, so it's like, okay, well, Black discards the card, to get the advantage, you know, it gets something, and normally if it was just a mono black card, it would be maybe black mana, oh, but this is a black green card, you can get any color mana you want. Um, and thus, uh, one of the things that I, I'm a Johnny at heart, for those who do not know this. I, I love making engine cards. Now, engine, so what an engine card is, is a card in which you take one resource and you turn it into another resource. And they're fun. I mean, they make good Johnny cards because you can do shenanigans. But they also make good spike cards because often converting resources can be very dangerous. Especially, as in the case of this card, where it costs no mana. You're just turning cards in your hand into mana. So it allows you to... Well, this card costs all sorts of... Uh, it, it, the card did lots. Uh, so the most famous thing this card is for is a deck called Pros Bloom, or Prosperous Bloom, uh, in which Cadaverous Bloom was played with Prosperity, uh, as well with a few other cards, like Swandered Resources. Um, and uh, essentially what happened was... But, so before Prosperous Bloom, the thought about combo decks was... People were like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's fine. You know, for the kids. You know, like, like, it was this goofy thing that people did. But it wasn't a, a serious thing. It wasn't something that you... Um, Expect to see it in tournaments or something. Well, anyway, um, Mike Long shows up at Pro Tour Paris with the Prost Bloom deck and wins it. Uh, and that really put combo on the map. You know, that really made a lot of the, the, the pros go, oh, maybe I'm, not, maybe I'm not really thinking of combo correctly. That combo has the potency. You know, if it's fast enough and has enough versatility, oh, a combo deck can be constructed. Um, and anyway, it's funny. Well, one of the things that is a funny story is Mike Long. So... At PT Paris, you had to use, uh, the format was, you had to use Mirage and Visions. It was block-constructed, but uh, Weatherlight hadn't come out yet. Uh, and it just so happens that everything you need to make Process Bloom work was in Mirage and Visions. And Mike was convinced that R&D made the deck, chopped it up, and put in the two sets for, like, someone to find. And I, I could not convince him otherwise. I'm like, I'm like, I... All the pieces were made by different people. Like, I made Cadaver's Bloom, I know Bill made uh, Prosperity, Elliot made a few of the cards. Like, you know, it's not all made by one person. I go and and uh, 
It's funny because one of the things I did, uh, uh, is that the players always want to assume that we planned everything. And, and sometimes we did. But uh, sometimes just we made open-ended interesting cards and they clicked together in neat ways. Uh, you know, we, did, we don't always necessarily plant things. I know, I know people like, like to think we do. And, and I'm not saying we never do. We have. But uh, it's funny. It's the expectation of players and sort of what they, what they think we do. Okay, next up. Okay, I'm going to ask you some trivia questions now. A few trivia questions. Trivia question number one. Um, Daring Apprentice is a card in Mirage. Uh, it is the first card to ever have something happen. Now, this is not rules text. It's not about the rule. It's not, it's not about what the card does. It's about how the... It's, the question is more meta. Like, this card did something in the grand scheme of magic that had never been done before. And the answer is, it is the first card ever to be eroded before it came out. Uh, and here's why. So the card on it has an ability where you can use it to counter a spell. Um, and at the time, for those who might not know this, um, when Magic first came out with Alpha, uh, there were actually three different kinds of cards that you could cast during your opponent. Uh, you could, sorry, three kind of non-permanent cards. There were sorceries, there were instants, and there were interrupts. So what interrupts were was uh, before 6th edition rules, there was no stack in Magic. Uh, the way it worked was, you could cast your spells, and certain spells, interrupts, said, hey, if, I, if you cast an interrupt, nothing can be played in response except other interrupts. And in order for counter spells to do their thing, they needed to be interrupts. So Daring Apprentice was supposed to say on it, hey, uh, play me as an interrupt, but we forgot it. Uh, and the card did not work. It countered a spell. And if it wasn't an interrupt, you know, didn't work as an interrupt, it, it, you couldn't counter the spell. So we knew that the card wasn't going to do what the card said. And so we put a rod out saying, okay, guys, it, it works. It works. It, it, it's an interrupt. Or, you know, works as an interrupt. Um, and the funny thing is, after 6th edition, the card got a rata back. So it was the first card ever to get a rata, and now it doesn't even have a rata. Okay. Trivia question number two. Um, what card in Mirage was called Mirage up until the set officially got the name of Mirage and then we changed the name of the card. Um, now, I know since then um, we have made sets in which we have, uh, you know, the, 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 the card in the set had the same name as the set. Um, but at the time we didn't do that. Um, so what card was it? Shimmer. Uh, the card Shimmer was called Mirage during, I don't know, all of design, most of development. Uh, and we were going to keep the name until the set officially got called Mirage. So real quickly, um, I don't think I talked about this last time. Um, so uh, another interesting Twitter question is, um, what set had two different code names? Uh, and the answer is Mirage. Okay, that, that one isn't too hard. But what are the two different code names? Well, when Richard first got the set, when he first put it together, um, the team that made it uh, nicknamed it, you know, gave it a name of Menagerie, which means like a, like a zoo. Um, and uh, when it got to Wizards, it got a new nickname because all the code, or code name, all the code names at the time were uh, Macintosh sound files. Uh, the real quick, the reason for that is uh, when I first started working at Wizards back then, uh, everybody had a Mac. The entire offices had Macs. And whenever you opened a folder, or back then, you opened a folder that had uh, the name of a Mac sound, it would go off. And so we named all our code sets at the time after Mac files so that our folders when we opened them would make a sound, which is, sounds silly. Well, it sounds silly because it is silly, but we did that. Um, so Mirage's code name, once it got to Wizards, was Sosumi. 
uh, which people thought was a joke, like, you know, so sue me, like somehow we were doing something illegal or something. Um, but anyway, uh, I think that might have even been the last, well, Colson that had a Mac named to be retro, but I, th- I think the, uh, other than that, I think Sosumi was the last Apple sound code name. Um, but anyway, the set does have two code names. Little, little trivia question. Okay, let's see, we'll do another trivia question for you. Um, okay. Talimtor is a guy in the set. He's a character. Um, Talimtor is an anagram. Much like Mangara was an anagram of anagram. What is Talimtor an anagram of? Okay, and the answer is Mr. Toilet. Okay. Now the next trivia question is, why? Why? What, who is Mr. Toilet? Um, and at the best of my knowledge, Mr. Toilet was a nickname of um, Don Felice, is my guess. Um, I, I know it wasn't Charlie or Bill or Joel. Theory could have been Howard or... or um, Elliot, but I, I, I believe it was Don Flute. Oh, by the way, I made a comment in, in part one that I, I realized was slightly incorrect. So when I said Don Felice, an anagram of Don Felice's name was Felden's Cane. That is not correct. The original name for Felden's Cane was Felden's Ice Cane, and that is an anagram of Don Felice. But um, it got changed, so it is no longer. Now, there is another magic card that has Don Felice as an anagram, uh, and I think it is Delph's Cone, if that's correct? Anyway, a little, little side note. Okay, uh, any other trivia questions I can ask here? Uh, oh, before I get into that, uh, Tilimtor. Um, so there's a little funny thing about Tilimtor. So we were making a little joke about, uh, or, I mean, the Tilimtor came in from the design team. They were making a joke about one of the team members, um, and one of the cards, uh, Tilimtor's darts, um, in plate, or in design, was called Tilimtor's Tiny Darts, because it, it plinks for one, it, 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 it's a very weak thing. Uh, but we had no end, uh, no, we had a lot of fun in playtest going, I, I plink you with my tiny dart. Um, and I think the name just didn't fit on the card. We were going to call it Talimtor's Tiny Darts, but uh, uh, I don't know whether continuity just didn't like the name or, I don't know, we, we changed it. It might not have fit. Um, okay, so is there any other trivia or just move on to some other questions? Okay, I'm going to move on to talk to some other stuff. Okay, um, so... Uh, I, from time to time, I've mentioned the fact that I worked on Roseanne. Uh, I was on staff for Roseanne, my, my big, my, my high point in my writing career for television. Um, but I have never yet told the story of how ro- my Roseanne days affected magic design. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so here's a story of how a card mirage was affected by my time on the staff of Roseanne. Okay. So, uh, for those that might not know how, how uh, a sitcom writing staff works, uh, what happens is you have a room, uh, and you have the script, and basically you sit in the room, it's called the writer's room, and just you go through the script many, many times trying to sort of up the jokes, just make the jokes funnier. Um, and what will happen is, the way, the way it tends to work is, you, somebody writes a script, or a couple people write a script, uh, and the first week the actors act it out. And then the, the writers watch the actors, and then they see what works and do, what doesn't work. And then they take notes where the jokes kind of aren't working or something. And they come back. And then the, the room, the whole all the writers in the room, try to fix the jokes. Um, and in general, because we're trying to, you know, make humor, we're trying to keep the room pretty light. You know what I'm saying? You, you definitely want the, you know, if you're trying to make comedy, you want people that sort of, um, you know, have a, you want, you want it to, to be fun. 
And so one of the things that often happens is, you know, people do things to entertain one another. They tell stories. So um, one of the writers um, one day tells a story. He had been to the zoo the previous day. And he told us a story about the zoo. So at the zoo, there was a creature called meerkats. So a meerkat, um, are these little tiny creatures. Uh, have you ever seen The Lion King? Um, I believe Timor is a meerkat. Um, like Timor and Pumbaa. Pumbaa is a big uh, warthog. Uh, so uh, Timor is uh, a Timor. I'm messing his name up. He's a meerkat. Um, so what a meerkats do, actual honest got meerkats, like at the zoo, is uh, he was watching them, and one of the meerkats would see something, and they would sit up, um, sit up on their hind legs, and take their front legs and hold them in front of themselves. Now, this is a recording, so me demonstrating that does not do a lot of good. Uh, imagine if you, you had your hands kind of held um, up against your chest, but sort of just sitting there, um, and you know, just holding, holding down, um, and like perched up. And so what happened is one meerkat would perch up. And then as soon as one meerkat would see another meerkat perched up, he would perch up. And then that would keep going on until all the meerkats would perch up. And then at one minute they would sort of break and all go back to their thing. And he was just saying it was this very funny thing. So from that, uh, we would play games in the room. So we started this little game that said, at any moment, any member of the writing team could perch up like a meerkat. And if they did... Whoever saw them must also perch like a meerkat until every single person in the room perched as a meerkat, and then we would just break. Now, the funny thing about this is we didn't talk about it. It wasn't explained. It just kind of happened. It naturally happened one day, and it was this little game we played. Now, where it got really fun was when somebody was in the room that wasn't on the writing staff and didn't know our little game. So, for example, one day, Martin Mull, who was on Roseanne, um, he played her boss for a while when she owned a diner. Um, anyway, he would occasionally come to the writer's room and help out. Because he, he's very, very funny. Uh, he's a comedian, and, and, and he was awesome. And so we gladly had him in the writer's room whenever, whenever we could. Um, so one day, we're in there, and we're talking about something. And somebody, I don't even know who, not me, somebody perches like a meerkat. So I see it. I perch like a meerkat. And one by one, everybody perches like a meerkat. But the thing is, you can't break until every single person perches like a meerkat. And Martin Mull, who has no idea, has never seen this do this, is sitting there as everybody else in the room is silent, perched like a meerkat. And so he looks around, he's like trying to figure out what's going on, and so finally, he makes the meerkat, he perches like a meerkat, and then we break and continue on, and say nothing. Um, and that was just a wonderful moment of just watching Martin Mull like, what is going on? Uh... Anyway, I shared this story with R&D, and they thought it was very funny. Um, we even played the meerkat in R&D for a little while. Um, back in the day, by the way, a little side note is, when I first got to Wizards, there was a thing that we referred to as the game. And what the game was is there was a series of rules about what ha- you had to do, and if you didn't do those things, um, you, I don't know, got punched in the arm or something, um, and... So basically, there's a whole bunch of rules. And the game was this multi-layered, complex thing. Like, there's certain words you couldn't say, and when certain words were said, you had to do certain things, and if you did something, if not, then you couldn't talk until someone said your name. And uh, It was complex. It was just this little game. I think Scaff had designed this game, he and his friends during college. And, um, but anyway, for a little while, the Meerkat game got merged into the game. Uh, and R&D did it for a little while, and it was... It was it entertained us. Um, but anyway, when we were doing Mirage, uh, the meerkat, because we were doing the meerkat thing, we decided to make a meerkat. 
Um, and so the meerkat, I don't even know if the card had anything to do mechanically with the card, but as far as it being a meerkat, the, the, having a meerkat in the set was 100% tied to uh, the Roseanne meerkat game that, that we, I brought to R&D. Okay, next. Uh, Grinning Totem. Okay, so, um, I love, I, I get a lot of theories. Uh, for those of you that read my column, you get to hear about my theories. Um, many of my theories, I think, have proven to be pretty valid and have become a pretty, a staple of how R&D functions. But sometimes I come up with a theory that kind of doesn't quite work out the way I thought. You know, it doesn't quite prove itself. Um, so I had a theory, when I first got there, uh, of what I called a marquee card. The idea of a marquee card was I thought that every set, uh, well, Ice Age had just come out before I got there, and Ice Age had a card called Gesture's Cap. So, for those who don't know, uh, Gesture's Cap is a card that allows you to go into your opponent's library and permanently remove three cards you know, for the game. Um, and before that card, we had never allowed people to touch other people's libraries or take cards out of the game. Like we had never done that. And so the card was really eye-catching because people were like, oh my god, this is amazing. Even whether it was or it wasn't, it just was really out of the box. And I said, you know, maybe what we want every set to do is have one card, and I thought it needed to be an artifact or a land, meaning it needed to be able to go in any deck. That part of being a marquee card was this crazy, did something you've never seen before, but that anybody could play. Um, and so I decided that we should have a marquee card. So I went to Bill and I said, Bill, I explained my theory. I go, we need a marquee card. And Bill was like, well, if you make something good enough, I'll put it in. You know, the gauntlet's thrown. So you can see a lot of Mirage is gauntlet throwing and me trying to make cards. Uh, and notice what happened. A lot of my design on Mirage was we'd get a hole. One of two things. Either we'd get a hole and I'd try to fill it. Um, like Maro example of that. Or I felt we had need, and I would say to Bill, um, here's our need. And Bill would say, like, well, make a card. And then if, if there's, A, if the card is good enough, and B, if I can find a spot for it, I'll put it in. Um, sometimes I would I combine those. I go, I, the thing I'd want to make, and there's a whole one, I'd combine them together. But anyway, so I said we needed to have a marquee card. Bill's like, we'll make a card. So I made Grinning Totem. And so for those that don't know, Grinning Totem is a card that allows you to go to your opponent's library and cast a spell out of your opponent's library. You're casting their spells. We've never done that before. I mean, now it's funny because... Like, whenever we do something, then a later magic does more of it, you know. And now the idea of messing with your opponent's library, you know, taking cards out or doing some things with their cards or casting their cards don't seem quite as crazy. Now, be aware, by the way, there was a card in Alpha that allowed you to cast a spell out of your opponent's hand, um, word of command. Uh, but we, you, we'd never let you cast a spell out of your opponent's deck. So anyway, I made Green Tome to be that. I mean, it definitely uh, created some excitement. But it, I later realized that the marquee card... I don't know, my, my theory didn't quite hold out. Um, I did, by the way, well, I tried to make a marquee card for Tempest, interestingly enough, uh, Volrath's Helm, or Helm, Helm of Volrath, I think it's called. Um, but the card that got put out didn't end up being the card that I meant to be the marquee card. The marquee card was supposed to be because uh, Volrath, um, with his helm, could control people's minds, was supposed to be Mind Slaver, but we couldn't work it out. Uh, there's some rules issues, and Mana Burn was causing us problems. But anyway... Uh, I would later go to do it in Mirrodin, but that that card was made to be the marquee card of Tempest, although it never ended up in Tempest. Okay, next. Goblin Tinkerer. Okay, there's three things that I love. I mean, more than three, but three that matter for this case. Uh, and when I say love, I, I mean magic-wise. I love my family and such. Um, okay, number one. I love artifacts. Like, before I came to Wizards, my favorite set, my bar none, 
well, I mean, I love the Alpha, but my favorite expansion was Antiquities. Why? Because it's just it, artifacts. You know, I loved artifacts. Uh, I, I still do love artifacts. Um, I did make Mirrodin, and I made Esper, and I made Scars of Mirrodin, so I, uh, I, I'm a fan of artifacts. Anyway, uh, I love artifacts. A, one, I love artifacts. Two, I love changing things into other things. Um, my favorite card, or one of my favorite cards in Antiquities was Transmute Artifact, which I would later go on to uh, tweak with Tinker. Okay, I later go on to break with Tinker. Um, but Tinker was just me trying to, like, take uh, what I love about Transmute Artifact and just, you know, simplify it a little bit. Uh, A.K.A., I guess, break it in half. But, um, but anyway, I love changing things into other things. Three... I love the graveyard. Love the graveyard. So, for example, by the way, if there ever was the following format ever got made, the format is a designer's choice, where you pick a designer of magic, and then you could play any card that designer made in your deck. The winning deck of that format, I believe, would be Rosewater Dredge. Because I, now that I make the dredge mechanic, I have made like 95% of the cards you would need to make the most awesome dredge deck ever. Because I love the graveyard. You know, um, Bridge from Below, Narc Amoeba, uh, I don't na- name it. I- I've made a vast, vast majority of the cards that use the graveyard very powerfully and efficiently, um, in- including making the dredge mechanic. Um, so anyway, take those three things together. Take a love of artifacts, a love of changing things, a love of the graveyard. Voila! Goblin take door. Um, uh, anyway, th- that was definitely me kind of just making the kind of card that I would like to make. Uh, also, another thing that I liked about the card was it's what uh, I would I used to call a puzzle card, which was uh, back in the day I made magic with the puzzling, which was uh, you know like, like a chess puzzle except it was magic, and you were in game. It's like you know win the game or something. You'd have some objective, usually winning. Um, and uh, Goblin Tinker was an awesome puzzle card because all you had to do is put a couple artifacts in play, a couple artifacts in your graveyard, and like now you had all these interesting options. You know, it, it really with with one card you had all these different you know avenues for the for, for the, the person solving the puzzle to go down and figure out what they could do and so uh, it's definitely both the kind of card I loved as a player and the kind of card I loved as a puzzle crafter um, okay what is next um, next is oh another trivia question um, what was the first uh, Mirage card to be printed now this is a trick question and probably not one you know unless unless I talk about this during Homelands um, the answer is Memory Lapse, because Memory Lapse, although designed by the Mirage design team, actually came out during Homeland. How did that happen? Um, well, the way it happened was um, Bill Rose had come out to Wizards. I think he might have even been doing his interview for the job, but he came up for some reason. Um, and while he was there, they were doing the final touches on Homeland. So he sat in. And they had a hole for a counterspell. Um, and so... Um, they might have even had the art of I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, they had a counterspell. I think, in fact, it was late enough. They might have had the art. But they needed a counterspell. Uh, and so Bill said, oh, I have a great counterspell. Um, it's in my set, you know, in, in Menagerie. Um, and so they ended up taking because they needed it because it was like they, just, they needed something good. And Bill had a good spell, so they put it in. So Memory Lapse ended up coming out before Mirage, the set it was designed in. Um, there's, there's some other cases of that happening. Uh, we often will steal from the future. One of the rules in R&D is uh, whatever set is the chronologically coming out the next has priority if they really need something. So if you're desperate for something and the set in f- at, that's coming out after you has it, um, I mean, barring that thing being crucial to the upcoming set, um, you usually can take it. It's like, because that set has some time to replace it where you're like under the gun and got to get it out the door. 
Um, and so we, uh, we borrow from the future quite a bit. Okay, next, consuming ferocity. So this is an example of a card that was an awesome idea, uh, another card I did, an awesome idea that didn't quite play out the way I hoped. So the idea I had about the card, which was, was, was very simple, was you, you know, you, you enchant it, and then, or the idea of the spell was you make this, you give this thing some magical energy, and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger until the, that magical energy just burns them out and destroys them. And so the idea was that you cast it on your creature, and it gets better and better, but in true red fashion, it kind of burns itself out. Like, it's, it's just red, not, not thinking the long game. Um, and so I made the card, but what ended up happening was the... It just got more complicated than I really meant for it to be. The, just the, the, this is what happens from time to time, and it happened with Suspend, is when you make a card and you, um, you know, you, like, in your head it's a very simple idea, but when you actually have to write it out and put words on cards, then it just gets a lot more complex, meaning there's busy work that you have to do and make the player do, that just are like, what, what, you know? And Consumer Frosty is exactly one of those kind of cards where, like, in, in theory, like in, in, in the mind space, and the, the idea of it is, is pretty simple, right? Uh, but, but when you actually write it out and people reading it, it's the kind of thing you read twice and go, wait, what? What happens? Um, I'm suspended is a, even worse. You know, we're like, the idea of, you know, I get it for cheaper, but it takes four turns to play. But when you have to manipulate all the counters and everything, it just, it confuses people. And so one of the things we do now in design is we actually will template things. I mean, rough templates, but we will actually have the rules manager do rough templates early so we can look at something and understand that, like, oh, is this going to be as easy as we think it's going to be? Because one of the things that happens a lot in design is you make something and you think it's going to be super, super simple and obvious and intuitive, and then when you actually write it out, it's not. That the way, what you need to do with the game mechanics to make it happen makes it, you know, not, not as a... It just doesn't shine as much. And that one of the rules of, of design is you have to understand the means by which you have to communicate uh, your game mechanic to the audience, that you have to go through templating, you have to go through the rules, and that sometimes what seems so obvious isn't when you actually have to communicate it. And, and that, that's a very important lesson to have. Um, uh, another important lesson to have came from a card called the Kundu Cyclops. Um, so that was a card that uh, whenever another creature attacked, it had to attack, you know. And on the surface, it seemed pretty cool. It's like, well, you know, um, it's a card that says, well, if people are attacking, I'm attacking, you know. And the, but, but here's the problem. It's a card that had to do something, but it cared about another card. And the problem is, people would attack all the time, and, like, they just wouldn't look at their Kundu Cyclops. They wouldn't look at it. And so, like... They had nothing to remind them that, oh, by the way, you have to attack. Because the card said, hey, if something else happens, you have to do something. And people would miss it all the time. Uh, and what we learned is that, um, you know, it's bad to make... I mean, you have to be careful to make a card in which, like, I must do something, but something else must happen. And that, um, that we do do some triggers and stuff like that. We have to be careful. And usually we make the trigger big enough that it matters. Um, but the problem, especially with the Kuten Cyclops, was sometimes, like, the player... You know, it wasn't that they weren't thinking about it. They're just like, oh, I can't attack with them, put it aside. And then a new creature comes out. They're not even thinking about the Kundu Cyclops. Um, and once again, that's an example of a design that, like, seems simple. And then in actual play, people kept messing up on it. And so we don't do that exactly anymore. Uh, what we'll do now is we'll make a card, for example, that says, um, you know, uh, uh, if, you know, I, if I attack, 
uh, you know, something else must attack, or um, if you know, I must attack with something else, or you know, things in which it sort of reminds you that it, the card itself says, "Hey, I must be involved with other things," and, and not like you must remember even when you're not looking at me that I might have to do something. Okay, next. Uh, so one of the things that uh, I talked about last time was how Mirage came up with some things that we hadn't done before, and they, they were the first sets to do them. I talked about stalking and skulking, and um, one of the ones I forgot about was uh, the card Thirst. Um, so what happens is, in Limited, it's important that every color at Common have some way to deal with creatures. Um, white, obviously, has pacifism effects. Black has car- creature destruction. Red has direct damage. Um, Green now has um, uh, prey upon type effects. Before, uh, it would try to do more stuff with lure or, or things in which its creatures would try to make you fight your creatures. I think prey upon is a better solution. But anyway, blue needed something. We're like, well, how could blue, you know, because blue doesn't destroy things. It's not blue's thing. And yeah, blue could counter creatures, but hey, well, what happens if blue can't counter them? So we wanted to give blue some answer to it. Uh, and the idea we eventually came to, which has now become a pretty stable part of, of blue in, in, in common, is the idea of a lockdown card. That blue has an enchantment that says, well, you don't untap, you know. And uh, sometimes it taps a creature, sometimes it doesn't. But it gives blue kind of an answer. Um, and Thirst, I, I'm pretty sure, was the first co- time we had done this. It was the first card to do that. And, and one of the things about Mirage that I like, I like to explain is that um, Mirage is, was, uh, I don't know, the ninth set to come out? I mean, it was a relatively early set. Um, and what happens is, whenever we make new sets... We always stumble across new things, and, 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 like, one of the things that makes the game awesome is we keep experimenting, we keep finding new things that work, we bring those things to the game proper, um, and that each set kind of evolves our technology of learning what we can do. Um, and I think Mirage was a big step technological-wise, that there's a lot of individual things that got done that went on just to become how magic functions, you know. On top of that, Mirage is the start of what I call the Silver Age of Design, right? It was the first set, really, that had block design. It was the first set where, you know, limited... The thought of limited was a big part of how the set got designed and developed. Um, you know, and that Mirage was a, a milestone. I mean, I, I think it, it, when you look back at it these days, it seems, it seems a little on the bland side, only because... Like, for example, the story I tell was I was in film school, um, and we saw a film called The Great Train Robbery. Um... And when you're watching this film, it seems like the goofiest, like, you know, it just seems so childish because, like, you know, the, 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 the photography is, is, you know, we have no, none of the effects. It's all very silly, you know. Um, at the end, we're like, why are we watching? This is the, the dumbest thing. And, and my teacher's like, no, 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 no. See how they were at the train station and then the next shot, they're at the bank, you know, or the, you know, that, um, that meant that. They're at one place, and if you cut, now you're at another place, and the audience goes, oh, they're at the same place. If you cut back and forth, the audience will believe that they're at the same place. He goes, that didn't happen before this film. That didn't exist. Something that's so ingrained in your you know, mental mapping of how you look at film, something that's like just a given. Just that is how film works. This is the, this is the set that did it. You know, and that, you know, yeah, now it looks so simplistic because, well... It did something that hadn't been done before. Mirage did a lot of that. There are a lot of neat, innovative things that, like Mirage did, that when you look back, it might look a little on the bland side, but that's because things you take for granted that are just part of magic were, you know, a key element of being there. So, anyway, that is... I'm, I'm now at work. I'm parked. In fact, I've been parked for a minute. Uh, but I wanted to finish up. Um, so, anyway, I... 
I hope this is my, my, my final part of my Mirage, uh, my three part. Um, like I said, I, I have great respect for Mirage design. I think that uh, Bill and Joel and Charlie and Don and Elliot and Howard made an awesome set. Um, you know, I, I think the development team was coming into its own. I mean, really, this was the first real set the four of us developed. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm very proud. I, I think, like, you know, in the test of time, uh, Mirage was a good set that, that led the way to a lot of things. Um, it wasn't the most exciting set, but I think it laid a lot of groundwork. And I think it did a lot of good, solid things that got built upon. Um, and I, th- I feel like it, it has, a, in, my, in my mind, a very central place in magic history. Like I said, it's the start of the Silver Age of Design. That, that's a pretty big deal. So, anyway, uh, i got to go make some magic cards now. So, uh, it was fun talking all about Mirage Design. But it's time to go make the magic. <laughs>